welcome to Season 2 of the Thompson Rivers University Business Law Society Podcast. My name is Bowen Matheson. I'm a 3L student at TRU Law and the host for this second season. I was among the founding team of TRU Law students who started the Business Law Society in 2019, and I produced Season 1 of this podcast last school year. This podcast aims to provide students, lawyers, and the general public with insights from some of the greatest legal professionals in Canada. We hope that our conversations with rising stars, legal innovators, law professors, Queen's Counsel, and other legal professionals provide our listeners with impacting and thought-provoking entertainment. So with that said, this podcast is not legal advice. Our second guest on Season 2 of the TRU Business Law Society podcast is Deline Visser of Synergy Business Lawyers. Deline practices real estate, corporate structuring, and corporate commercial law at Synergy Business Lawyers in Vancouver, British Columbia. Deline advises business owners in many aspects of their business, including buying and selling a business, corporate governance, shareholder agreements, leases, residential and commercial conveyancing, financing, and drafting bespoke contracts. Deline has a Bachelor of Arts from McGill, was among the second graduating class from TRU Law, and has completed the CPA in-depth tax course. Deline also assists individuals and business owners with estate freezes, corporate reorganizations, and other wealth management matters. Deline, welcome to the TRU Business Law Society podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here. What is your favorite practice area and what draws you to certain areas more than others? I consider myself to be a transactional lawyer, and that is my favorite area of practice. I like transactional work because it's happy people for the most part. Uh, People are either selling a business and getting paid or they're buying a business and they're excited to see what they can do with that business. I like working with those people because it's it's a positive environment. It's challenging in the sense of there are constantly moving parts to it and it can be very, very stressful. But for the most part, if it's like exam day, like closing day is like exam day. If you are well prepared, it's almost relaxing because you're just like, I'm here. We're just going to pound it out. It's going to be fine. If you're not well prepared, it's not a good experience. But for the most part, for me personally, I'm a people person. So my clients are the people who keep me practicing, helping them do what they want to do and seeing them achieve things and knowing that you were a part of that. That's the most rewarding part for me. Or even just um, being able to give them advice that prevents them from walking down certain roads or helps them out in in various ways. Um, That's what keeps me in the game. Um, I know that there are other lawyers who like the more academic side of the law or other lawyers who like the more adversarial side of the law. Um, I, I'm a deal maker. I don't like, I will fight with people if I need to fight with them, but for the most part, I want to work, having everybody work together towards a goal. Would you care to just share with us a brief overview of your career from articling to your current role at Synergy? Sure. So I did everything backwards, did not follow the typical push to go into a downtown firm or a big firm. I didn't even apply to OCIs um, when I went to law school because I was sure that I wanted that I knew what I wanted and I wanted to be in a smaller town and practice law in a small town, which is what I did. So I articled in Kelowna about six months after I was called. uh, I moved to Penticton for an opportunity there and I practiced there for three years. And did, as I said, the thing that everybody tells you you can't do. And I went from there to a national firm. The first thing that I always tell people is don't don't think that there is a way to do any particular practice um, or any career. There isn't just one path. 
if you want to do something and it doesn't work out now, you can certainly still do that later in your career. You just need to find another way to do it, maybe. Or maybe you go one way and find, oh, I thought I would love this, but I don't. That's generally the overview of what I did. I went, like I said, I went backwards. A lot of people start downtown and then move out. I started out and moved in. We hear that so often as everybody feels all this pressure to manifest their best selves in the first year of law school and get themselves the opportunity to then feel confident to apply for OCIs. And then they go through that gambit and they come out either successful or the majority of people unsuccessful. But you weren't from Kelowna, right? You just discovered that from being out at TRU? Or when did you figure out that that was a place you were interested in? I'm from the interior. I did high school in a town called Rosalind. Um, I just spent a lot of time in Kelowna because it was kind of the closest big city. So you had been there a little bit beforehand yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. Roslyn's such a small little town. I mean, it's a great ski town, but yeah, not a lot of practice, right? A lot of small towns suffer are legal deserts. I just had a client who we were closing a deal in Salmon Arm and they had to drive to Vernon to get somebody to sign them up because a lot of smaller towns, like I say, they're legal deserts. So there are opportunities depending on the type of law you want to practice. The problem for most lawyers is A, they either don't want to live there or B, uh, people don't want to pay them fairly for their work. If you want a thriving practice, you can certainly go to a small town and build a practice really quickly. Just how saturated Vancouver's market has become, it seems like it's just like a mountain to climb if you are going from a smaller city center to that. But I remember you mentioning to me that it was like almost a necessary thing for you to do to continue to build your career when you were in Penticton. Is that right? What I found, and I, I recently had a similar conversation with a lawyer who's now in Vernon, but started downtown Vancouver. And we were both saying that your level of exposure in smaller towns is so much more than you will get in a big city and or in a, in a big firm. Because in a smaller town, A, there's a lot of work and there's not a lot of bodies. B, you will get client contact, um, which I think is one of the most valuable skills that I learned in my time in Penticton. How to manage clients, how to manage billing, um, just that client FaceTime, because a lot of junior lawyers really struggle um, with how to manage client expectations and how to manage clients so that they don't get mad at you and you don't get burnt out. But at the end of the day, there's nobody there. So you just have to go and you have to figure it out and you have to learn. And that in itself is hugely valuable. What were some of the steps that you took that were helpful for you to make those moves? And how would you recommend somebody to do so if they were interested in doing that? Get a recruiter. I mean, unless you know somebody, very few downtown firms are hiring people that are just... I mean, I'm not talking about articling level, I'm talking about associate level, um, who are just sending in resumes. It's expensive to hire somebody. It's a huge commitment from the firm. So just about everybody is working through recruiters because the recruiter vets you, essentially. I always say to people for from the associate's perspective, it's it's a little bit like getting a realtor if you're if you're buying. It's no skin off your back. You don't pay for it. Oh, you don't? Okay. No, the law firm pays for it. So they get a finder's fee, basically. But at the end of the day, you have this person. And if you are already practicing law, you don't have time. You do not have the time to be trolling various and applying. It takes a long time to apply to jobs. 
I'm sure you know this well, having done so recently, it's very time consuming and exhausting. And again, if you're already practicing, you don't have the time or just potentially the energy to be, you know, sending out multiple resumes to firms, following up, trying to get in and so forth and so on. So my biggest advice to anybody wanting to move in their legal career, other than to a very small town, Um, If you want to move to any major city, be it Calgary, Vancouver, Toronto, anywhere like that, contact a recruiter. There are tons of them out there. Uh, You don't just need one, as many as you'd like, and have them do the hard work. Yeah, I like your analogy comparing them to like a real estate agent. You know, it's like unless things move or things happen, the investment for you is pretty minimum. Yeah, and they're very motivated because they get paid. They will shop you around, bearing in mind if they think that you are a candidate that can be shopped around. That is the other end of the spectrum, of course. You want to convince them that you're somebody who will get hired. Right. Or you're more than likely to get hired if you get an interview, right? Right. Because it's some level of reputation for them. You know, if they get you all the way into the door to meet somebody at one of these firms and then they meet you and then they're looking at the recruiter like, what the hell is this? Yeah. And of course, it's going to affect them negatively. And a lot of recruiters will have relationships with firms. So for example, when I moved from my first firm in Vancouver to this one, the recruiter I was talking to was saying, well, they don't, they're not really looking, Synergy's not looking for anybody, but your skill set is what is what they want, what they usually are looking for. I'm going to call them and say, hey, I have somebody. Are you interested? And and it ended up working out that way. So you know, it's it's sort of one of those things if you get the right recruiter who is in with the right firms and can it literally just makes a call and says, Hey, I have somebody. But the biggest the biggest thing is to just get in the door. Because once you're in the door, you've been here a couple of years. Um, that's the other thing I always try tell people I'm like, try not to leave a job in less than a year, even if you hate it, just see it through for that year. It makes a big difference on your resume. Um, I mean, one job for less than a year is probably not a big deal, but if you make a habit of it, that's going to really impact your ability to market yourself because people will start thinking that the problem isn't the job, it's you. That kind of led me to a question. Because so many students get really great ideas. They're like, I want to do this very niche practice area, but it's a very good idea to start off with getting fundamental solicitor practice in because a contract is a contract and you need to know those fundamentals before you can start really transitioning into more technical fields. Is that something that you felt going to Vancouver? No, for sure. And I mean, to a large extent, all of these niche practices aren't even really niche practices because, for example, whether you write an independent contract for a tech company or for a mining company, the principles of independent contractors are the same. There may be small elements that are different, you know, what the pay is or how vacation works in that particular field or something like that. But for the most part, that's information your client provides. And I was I was thinking about this because I recently had a friend of mine who works in tech ask me, she said, oh, you know, I need a accountant who works in tech. I'm like, no, you just need an accountant who knows accounting. <laughs> Right. Because the Income Tax Act applies the same to you as it does to everybody else. And sometimes people in these industries think that they're very special and they think, oh, my industry is so different. But it really isn't um, when it comes down to corporate governance, because, you know, corporate governance, shareholder agreements, 
independent contractor agreements, any of those things, the law is the same regardless of what industry you're in, unless you have some special regulatory issues or something along those lines. Otherwise, from a small company perspective, it's you need to learn the basics before you can, can do anything really. And, and there are very, very few people who are just one type of law lawyer. In Vancouver, particularly, there are very few. Um, there are probably a couple in Blake's and some of the big places that will only do financing and they've only done financing and that's all they'll ever do. Um, and of course, in Toronto, there are people. But for the most part, most people, even in Van- downtown Vancouver, you have to have a broad understanding, be able to deal with all of your clients' issues, not just one. As a solicitor, you're like their lawyer. So they might have a litigation issue, but they'll come to you with it first because you're there probably giving them the most face time, helping them with the more day-to-day things or more contract oriented stuff. And, but maybe they have a massive workplace issue that comes up and they need an employment law professional, but they'll come to you first and then hope that your firm can have another associate that can help them out. Right. The way that I think about it is we're the GPs of lawyers. So exactly that most, especially if they trust you, right. Because you've built that relationship. So I would never say I give litigation advice, but I advise people shockingly often on what their litigation options are as a starting point and then refer them out if they want to pursue them further. But yes, you, you are the, the touchstone for most people, most general solicitors. You might not do certain areas and I'm, you might be very vocal about not doing them, but you need to know at least enough to know that when a problem arises. You were part of the second graduating class from TRU. And so what was it like back then? Do you have any memories that you can share? Um, well, we weren't in the new building yet. So we were in, uh, I can't even remember the name of the building right now. The one with Tim Hortons is. Oh, the, um, the House of Learning? Yeah, House of Learning, you're right. And um, we kind of dominated. There was this one classroom in the middle of the second floor or third floor. I can't remember. It was very stuffy. And about halfway through the year, they found out that there was some ventilation shaft that they just didn't know was there and never opened, and which is why it was so stuffy. Um, so we were all very excited to move into the, into the new building um, because I think that happened when like halfway through my second year. And um, we moved in in February, in the beginning of our second term, so in the middle of winter, and it didn't have heat. So there was no heat in the building for about two weeks, I think. Can't remember. Yeah, it was fun. The best part, we had our professors, and that was the most important thing. And we all got a good education, I like to think. Um, But all of the peripheral things that you may or may not take for granted just weren't there. Um, You know, we didn't have a library. We didn't have a career person. I think we got one, again, maybe halfway through my second year or something like that. But one person, we didn't have dedicated learning space. So we, now you have your, the reading room and, and all of those things. So l- looking back on it, I'm just like, oh, we made it. <laughs> were there any standout courses that were outside of the mandatory course load for your degree that you would really stress a business law keen student take? There are a couple. One, trusts. You have to know trusts. Um, You may think that as corporate lawyers, we don't need to know trusts, but you do. Um, A, you're going to be advising on resulting trusts um, and any of those trusts by operation of law all the time. And second of all, we all like a good bear trust. 
Um, so it's important to know the principles of trust law. The other one I would say is income tax, tax law. You need to have a firm understanding of how income tax works, even if you never, ever advise on it. Um, because there are actions that you can take as a corporate lawyer that have very, very negative income tax results for your client, uh, and you can't undo them. So basically, if you've fallen into one of these traps and maybe hasn't CYA'd yourself appropriately to tell them to go get tax advice, you're calling your insurer on that one. Remedies is also useful, but just to understand that really law has really crappy remedies. Um, so you need to think about that. Um, I just did a deal where the other side was paying for certain things for us. And I said to the lawyer, I'm like, we need to do a holdback because even though we contractually are entitled to that money, if somebody doesn't have that money in their trust account to practically go get it from the other side is very difficult. So it's important to sort of understand that just because you have a remedy doesn't really mean you can actually access it. And last one I would say is just a good real estate, like conveyancing course. The John O'Fee's course, I think was good in my opinion. Just something basic like that. I mean, honestly, I, I was a, a bad example. I did all of the black letter course, courses. Yeah, so I basically, I didn't take, I took very little. I think I took health law um, as one of the few non-black letter law courses. And my opinion would be like, take as many of those as you can, because you don't get the opportunity to learn those fundamentals. And if you do have to learn them later, it's much harder. And so you might as well go and learn as much of the ABCs as you can while you're in school. But they're a little drier and you don't get to write as many papers. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They're pretty unforgiving, right? You know, you're sitting through these things. Many of them have 100% finals. So you're kind of, unless you're a really great exam taker, that might be stress. But yeah, I know there was a, a lawyer from Gillespie and Company in Kamloops that came into a class for a guest lecture. And that was one of the things that I got to ask him before the class. Because, yeah, you're like, what these black letter law courses, what if I'm not too into it or I'm more passionate about some of these more specific ones? And he just put it simply, he's like, you're never going to have an environment to learn those things in the field of law. Law school is a much better environment for that, you know, otherwise that is going to be all hours that you're going to be doing off the table for you to learn those whole things. And then there's the argument or the reasoning to say that you should take them because they're helpful for the PLTC. And, um, but some people don't agree with that. Is it helpful for PLTC? The PLTC requirement is so specific. The way that they want you to answer things and the way that they grade things is very specific to PLTC. So it's, they're not, at least when I went, it wasn't that they were testing your general knowledge. They were testing, can you find this thing and say these words? Because you're just like paging through your notes. Um, but I agree that, this is the best place to learn. And ultimately, you won't ever know everything. But if you know the fundamentals, you can figure a lot out. I can't tell you the amount of times I have to tell clients. I'm like, what's the fundamental principle of a contract? Are three Ps. Where are the three Ps? And you would think that that's obvious, but it isn't. Um, so just having a fundamental understanding of what constitutes a trust. And if you can really wrap your head around that, you can answer really complex trust questions by just applying fundamental principles to them. 
and I say this all the time to people I work with. I'm like, they're like, I don't know what to do this. I'm like, well, take it down to basics. What are we doing? What area of law are we even in? Um, property law, contract law. What is the bare bones of what we're trying to do and build off from there? Um, and then very often, once you do that, the answer is, is quite obvious. I remember you mentioning this earlier in this call that, you know, about six months after you were called, you switched from that firm in Kelowna to the firm in Penticton. I remember you mentioning to me that it was some kind of pay structure, which was just definitely not ideal for a junior lawyer to be entering into, and which was one that you found out kind of the hard way, unfortunately. But what was that again? And what would you advise around it? Yeah, no. So the firm that I was with, um, they didn't want to take on the obligation of an associate. Because you're an employee, you get paid a salary regardless of how much money you're making or not making. So they didn't want to take on, and I was their first articling student. So they were like, no, we're not going to take on the associate because that's too much commitment. Um, And obviously as an associate, you earn a lot more than as an articling student. So they offered me basically like a independent contractor type of situation where I made a certain percentage basically of my billings. Now that sounds great. And I even had a friend a couple of years later who had the same thing provided to him. And he said, oh, but look, I can do the math and it's gonna work out so great. And I said to him, I'm like, somehow it never does. You know, you can run those numbers as much as you like. And at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, somehow the money isn't coming in because it's very simple psychology. If you're an associate, they're already paying for you. So they're motivated to give you work because you're a sunken cost. Um, but if you are, if you're an independent contractor, they have to, that's money that they have to take out of their little kitty. So even though it shouldn't make a difference because they're still, if, the, if you do the work, they're still making money there's a psychological difference there that I just don't think independent contractor situations for junior lawyers is ever a good idea because you don't have the client base. So you're hundred percent relying on somebody giving you work and you've now entered into a situation where they are quite literally motivated to not give you any work. It's really not an ideal situation in my opinion. I mean, I'm sure there are people who do it and are successful, but I think uh, most people are off are better off, getting a couple of years or more um, as, an em- as an employee with a salary and um, having A, this financial security and B, getting experience because that's ultimately the most important thing is to, even if you have to take a couple of years and a payment knock, is, if that gives you legal experience, that's well worth it. Thanks for explaining that, because I think it's prudent for a lot of students who might get put in that circumstance. Like you said, you work so hard, get, you put yourself out there, all the applications, you get an article, you, you're just like, God, I don't want to do that again. And then a year later, you're faced with the fact you're probably going to have to do it again for an associate position, um, unless you're really secure at that firm. And then they offer you, though, you can stay, but here's the world of options, and it's an independent contractor circumstance. And uh, people would just feel pressured or they're too scared or maybe, I don't know, what went through your mind when they offered it to you? Well, what went through my mind is I'm like, oh, well, the numbers look good. This could work. And like I said, this, ha- this is not just a law thing. I had a conversation with a client a year ago where he was going to do some earnout, and I told him it wasn't going to work. And he's like, no, but look at the numbers. I'm like, yeah, the numbers never end up being that. And 
just two weeks ago, he's like, yeah, you were right. I'm like, yeah, like if somebody can't put their money where their mouth is now, they won't be able to do that later. And so from my perspective, you know, when I was doing this the first time, I thought, oh, this is great because, you know, I can take time off. I can I have so much flexibility, which I did because I didn't give them any notice. I was pretty much, hey, I'm an independent contractor. I'm not coming to work on Monday. See ya. And that was how that ended. Um, I think I, I think I went back two to three days. But like I said, it's if if the firm is not successful enough that they can't guarantee you an income, then they probably will not be successful enough to guarantee you enough money on an independent contractor situation. Um, and again, we're talking about junior people here. If, if you get more senior, you might have your own clients, you might be able to market yourself. But as a one-year call you don't have very much opportunity to say, hey, look at me, I'm very knowledgeable because you still have a lot to learn. Perfect. No, thank you for sharing all that with us. I mean, in the event that you wanted any people needing any transactional work, how could they find you? How could they reach out to you? Always on the website, Synergy Business Lawyers LLP. All our emails are up there. Contact anybody anytime. Well, thank you for joining us on the podcast, Deline. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in learning more about the TRU Business Law Society, you can check out our website at www.trubls.com. See you in the next episode.